Good evening. I brought up two books this evening. I'm a book person. Books are my hobby. I don't play sports. I don't knit. I, uh, I do play the piano some. used to play it a lot more. Uh, now I watch our kids and have books, and I do a lot of other things. But two books this evening before we get started. Um, I've, I've mentioned very, very briefly history, just a little bit of history about local churches that began to see the New Testament's pattern for the church and move in that direction. This book is titled My People, the History of Those Christians Sometimes Called Plymouth Brethren. It's by an uh, uh, individual named Robert Bayless. It took him several years to write. Uh, it's an interesting read. Some of you may be familiar with a book by Harry Ironside uh, on the history of the, the so-called brethren, and he points out some, some different issues. But if you're into history, if you like to know uh, you know, what other believers who saw these things first were convicted about them, what they went through, where they came from, um, so that you just kind of understand a little bit of that, then this is an interesting book. There's, another, there's two books by uh, this brother. His name is Gary Gilley, and he wrote a book called this is his second book. The book, first book he wrote was called This Little Church Went to Market. And it was about the church that began, you know, the, the church in its flirtation with modernism, entertainment, and a number of other issues. And then he wrote this book, This Little Church Stayed Home, and, and it, deals with, uh, it deals with a lot of uh, issues of postmodernism, uh, the emerging church, and a number of those other topics. Uh, so um, they would be, they're books that I know that I've appreciated my father, who's an elder up at, uh, up at Carrollwood, has appreciated them and recommends uh, those two books. So uh, there you go. You can take a look at those uh, before, before we leave. All right. Uh, back to Ephesians chapter 4. This is our last message before um, I go home. And I just want to recap where we've been. I was asked to introduce the topic of this, the study that's coming up. So my goal this weekend has not been to start teaching what the New Testament's pattern for the church is, okay? So if you're wondering, well, when is he going to start talking about these things? I'm not. Uh, that's what you all are going to do when you go through uh, these, these studies. What I've tried to do is sort of set up some, some, some sort of surrounding issues. One, I talked on Saturday about why we would be motivated to care. How important is this? And, by, and I'm going to also remind you, this is, the, this is if, you need, if you want a fancy word, this is ecclesiology. Ecclesia, ology is the study of the church. This is one facet of doctrine. We're not talking about salvation in this study necessarily, although Randy does get into that. It's not really a study on Bible prophecy. Those are other important issues. It's not a study on marriage. It's not a study on um, you know, the Old Testament, uh, you know, the, the nation of Israel, things like that, although those things will come up. So this is one facet of, of doctrine that we come to grips with. Um, talked about why we should be concerned, why we should care, why it matters, number one. Um, this morning, I talked about the fact that some believers have grown up with a concept that I don't think is quite biblical. And that's to look at the church, their local church, as part of a group called the Brethren or the Assemblies. We want to inch our way back to biblical terminology or biblical ideas. And that is, is that if you have a gathering of believers together, in one sense, you have an assembly, an ecclesia, a group of believers. 
even if you don't see eye to eye with them. And our desire is to be New Testament patterned as a group of believers and to encourage other believers where we can to be New Testament patterned. And I just raised that concept, and there's a sheet in the back which will help you think through the fact that you might be New Testament patterned in certain ways and you run into other believers that are New Testament patterned and they are practicing other aspects of the New Testament pattern maybe a little more effectively than this local church is or than, than my local church is. We need to be humble and be willing to admit that and keep pressing forward to as much of the New Testament pattern for the church as we can. I'd like to keep going through some of what we were also talking about this morning is that there is a general boundary of of basics that you're going to see out there when you when you meet people. If the, the our goal is to aim for the New Testament's pattern, sort of a, a target in the center, then you're going to meet all kinds of other believers out there that have all kinds of different views. Some are doing more, some are doing less. And there is a basic boundary that the Apostle Paul gives us. And it's here in, in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to point out two other things that we didn't point out this morning as to why um, why I brought this up. Ephesians chapter 4 says the following. He says, I therefore, as the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As you study any field of doctrine the New Testament's pattern for the church, as you work together and grow together, it is unworthy of your calling to walk in a way that is any one of these things. Um, When we begin to walk as believers without lowliness, when we begin to walk as believers without humility, without long-suffering, then we're beginning to walk unworthy of the calling. That's what Paul says. So there has to be a balance between pressing forward towards doctrine and yet being humble, being long-suffering, being um, patient with others in our work. And we noted that oftentimes it is that lacking issue that causes division and that causes problems among believers. And also as we interact with other believers that we meet, this is a, this is a challenging need. You know, when you grew up in a local church like this, if you're taught to basically look at your local church as um, sort of as good as it gets, and you go out and you meet other believers that are strong in their faith, that love the Lord, that are preaching the gospel, it can throw you. Because that's a sort of an un... You've been sort of raised with an unbiblical mindset, and you don't realize that there's a larger body of Christ. And so there's a balance that we have to strive for to say, you know what, there's a pattern, there's doctrine, we're pressing forward to that, but there's a wider body of Christ. There are, there, there are millions of believers all over the world. There are believers in small churches in China that might not have manuals like this, and they might not have a lot of the information that we have, but they're pressing forward for Christ with what little that they know. God knows that. He's going to hold them responsible for what they know. And we have, to, we have to take that into consideration. So I think you have a balance here in keeping the sort of the, the, the wide spectrum in, in perspective as well as where we're going and we're heading. We're trying to encourage all other believers to go uh, towards. What I'd like to do is go through some of the, um, the statements in Ephesians chapter 4 quickly and just give you some verses. 
And then we're going to talk about um, false doctrine briefly. We read in Ephesians chapter 4 about one body. Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. If you meet believers that mention or that talk about or that hint at another body, your, your flag should go up. Your radar should go up. Your antennas should go up. And we need to realize that these scriptures are, that what we're reading are nearly 2,000 years old. And so you might sit here and say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, I kind of know that. But imagine yourself as a believer in Antioch in the year 500, and there's not nearly as much of a developed sense of doctrine, and you read this letter. And suddenly, you, you hear about um, something or you see something, and, and what you might take for granted being very simple actually has a role and has had a role in church history, and it's important to at least recognize these things and not just say, well, since it's simple, let's not read those verses and let's not think about that. This is a passage of Scripture in Ephesians 4 that the Lord wants us to know about. One body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says, this, says the following. It says, by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Can you think with the two groups that are in that passage, what could have happened in the early church? In Acts chapter 15, you see the issue of perhaps two bodies come up, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And Paul writes in his Ephesian epistle, the Lord has taken both and made one body, which is an excellent argument also for why the church began after Pentecost. Because the foundation of the church is Christ. The two that were far off were made together in one body. Christ has been made the head of the body after his ascension. And so that body, which is the church, couldn't have existed before the, before the ascension. And it was both Israel and the Gentiles that were, well, the Gentiles were far off. Israel was near, so to speak. But they were both made into one new man. That couldn't have existed before the cross and before Pentecost. It's an interesting thing to think about. One body. Um, Colossians 1.18 talks about that the, you know, it, it literally equates the body of Christ to the church. Ephesians 1 verse 20, Christ is the head of the body. And so it's just a simple concept. And if you find yourself, you meet somebody that begins to sort of bring up some type of, uh, you meet all kinds of people that say all kinds of things. Some erratic and strange doctrine about some special body, select body, some small body. There's one body. Friend, I, I, I just have, you know, that's what the scripture says. One spirit. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There's one Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you begin to meet someone or hear somebody talking about... They might not be talking about a spirit. Oftentimes, the issue of the spirit comes up in what motivates and prompts people's doctrine. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, though, has this same phrase. We read this. In verse number 2, Paul writes, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Well, what was Paul afraid of? But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What would that look like? For he who comes preaching another Jesus, whom we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, 
or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you might well put up with it. Paul says it. He says he was afraid of one of the assemblies, that the one that was in Corinth. They were showing tendencies to be willing to accept false teachers. And he describes it by saying another spirit. I don't know that he necessarily means they begin talking about something besides the Holy Spirit. But it's an interesting phrase. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Once I read it, you'll remember it, and you'll probably finish quoting the verse. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 1 to 3. is using the same phrase spirit you might argue for a little bit of a different context but it says beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of God now here's the connection between false prophets false teachers and the idea of so to speak spirits maybe even behind them we've heard of doctrines of demons in scripture um Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So Paul says, false prophets have gone out into the world, so you need to sort of put your radar up and test, quote-unquote, for the spirit that's behind people's teaching. It may not be the Holy Spirit. And so when I think about one spirit, we've received one spirit, but there's other spirits that are out there in the world, false spirits, false demonic teachings, the Scripture says. I mean, that's not popular speech today, but this is what the Scripture says. There's one spirit. There's one hope of your calling. Turn to Colossians one twenty-seven. You know, this is, uh, and I shouldn't say, I shouldn't give the next point and then say something about the previous one. Uh, but that's, this is one of the air issues and concerns I have with, with Pentecostalism. Um, Many passionate people among Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, but when you observe some of the behavior that goes on, you can see videos of things and this this supposedly spirit-led activity, you really begin to wonder, number one, one of the roles and works of the Holy Spirit is to do what? To take that which is Christ's and to show it to the believer. His ministry is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in many of these local churches, the focus is consistently on the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. He's almost glorified. And yet that's not what we see the, the spirit doing in Scripture. You see people doing things that sometimes border on the demonic. And it's supposedly you know, people being slain in the spirit. I mean, people barking and people rolling on the floor and laughing, people running up and down aisles screaming. And, and some people will say, well... You know, the Holy Spirit's got a hold of them. I don't know. I don't know that we see that in Scripture. Do we see that in Scripture? My dad likes to point out that when you search the Scriptures, anytime people were in the presence of the Lord, they always fell forward in reverence. And yet people are always today falling backwards when they're being slain. Now, that might be a trite point, but, you know, people are always noticing things like that. But anyhow, what spirit is behind this? Does that glorify Christ? God is not the author of confusion. If Paul says people come into the church, they're unlearned, they don't know the Lord, and you all speak in tongues, which I take to be other languages that the people had not learned, it was a miraculous gift that the Lord had given, he says they're going to say that you're crazy. Well, if that's true, what if people are running up and down the aisles, falling on the floor and screaming? Is that not crazy? And so you have to wonder, all kinds of things go on. 
And it's hard because you meet people and they're, they're interested in the Lord. They, they, they love the scriptures and yet you see these things going on. There's, there's one spirit and we're to test the spirits. Um, a lot of things are going on out there and we don't want to expose ourselves to some other spiritual force. One hope of your calling. One hope of your calling. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 27. There are many, many, many verses that talk about the hope of the believer. You could do a whole, a whole course on them. Um, some say it's the main theme of, of eschatology or, or, or things to come the, is, is the, the overarching theme of hope. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What is our hope as believers? Is it in a, a happy, peaceful life here? Or to pray that we can live a quiet and peaceable life? But we may not have that blessing and privilege. It's not our ultimate hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is our hope. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There's that term meekness again. In our interactions with people, even unbelievers, there is a place for meekness walking worthy of our calling. Um, you can be forthright, you can stick your ground, stand your ground, but you can also be meek and humble about it. And I think people appreciate that when they see it. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. All the T books are together. First and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus. That's for all of you that are a little bit younger in the audience here. If you ever get them mixed up, First and Thessalonians are the, the long T books. First and Second Timothy, sort of shorter T books than Titus, so they're all together. Titus chapter one, verse two. I'll read verses one and two. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means sent one. One is sent on behalf of another. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. So eternal life is an aspect of our hope. There's an aspect of eternal life that begins today, and there's a true eternal life. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's part of our hope. But who is it bound up with? Christ in you. The hope of glory. He is our life. He is the resurrection and the life. 
And so if you begin to talk with someone and their hope is not bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ or his return for the church, his bringing in righteousness, his setting up a kingdom, if that is not our hope, if that is not their hope, I don't know, you know what could be another option. You've really got to wonder. We were talking this afternoon about some people's hope of um, evangelizing the world and bringing in the kingdom through the work of the gospel and then turning that over to Christ. I don't know that that's the hope of the believer. That's certainly a completely different hope than the idea that the world will continually grow worse up until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A very different, different hope, a very different concept. One Lord... That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is probably what you will most be familiar with. You have met people that come to you and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say they're Christians and they talk about being part of a Christian church. But the more you talk about, the more you talk with them, you realize that they are not talking about the same Lord Jesus Christ that you're familiar with. You see this, for example, in 1 John. Turn over to 1 John. You know, John is all about um, three main characteristics of individuals that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that have eternal life. And it suggested that people that were sort of Gnostics had left these churches and were attacking the believers, saying that they didn't have eternal life and that they needed special people to teach them. That's what Gnosticism is all about, spiritual life through knowledge. It's sort of a New Age concept. And John writes to them, their joy has been taken from them. They don't know that they have eternal life. They're, they're doubting. John writes to them and he says, I'm going I'm to tell you the characteristics of those that have eternal life. And he gives them three characteristics. One of them is that those that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that are believers that have eternal life, they don't walk in sin repeatedly as a lifestyle and doesn't convict them. Number two, they have love for the brethren. Believers cannot just, they don't care about the body of Christ, they don't care about the church, they don't care about the brethren. And a third one is this one here. They have right doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you meet someone that has false doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ, here in First John you read about people that say that Christ didn't come in the flesh. Why? Because if you have this philosophical view that the flesh is evil, like some Greek philosophers taught, then you don't like the idea that the Lord Jesus was incarnate. And so you'll begin to talk about the Lord Jesus. Well, he didn't really take on a body. There was some sort of a connection there between God and the body. You'll meet people that will say the Lord Jesus didn't rise physically. He rose in his spirit body. Have you ever heard that? The Lord Jesus Christ is not God. Have you ever heard that? They're teaching and talking about another Lord. That's not the Lord that's preached in Scripture. I met some Jehovah's Witnesses who came to my door a few months ago. And um, I just opened up conversation, and we had a just we just talked, um, just you know, who are you guys? Where do you live? What do you do for work? And we got around to, you know, engaging in, in spiritual things. And um, I'm uh, I'm trying to remember sort of how we started, but at some point uh, we got to Colossians chapter one, and um, in verse number 16, 15 and sixteen, talk about the Lord Jesus Christ creating things. And I said, well, what, is it, what does it read like in your Bible? I mean, when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't remember my exact words, but 
we read in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. And so I'm looking at the New World Translation, and they had it in brackets there, for by him all other things were created. You know, and I continue to read, and they had in brackets there the word other, because they had, tran- they had put their doctrine right into the English text to avoid the issue that if all things are created by the Lord Jesus Christ, then clearly he has a divine figure. John writes that anything that was made was made by him. And they would put in, and so they would put in words or get around that by some means of the English translation. That's why they came out with a New World Translation because before they had it, they used a King James, and people would take them and basically point to the truth with their own Bibles. So they they, they preach another Lord, um, another faith. Colossians chapter two, verses six and seven. If you meet individuals. And I'm specifically talking about the gospel here. I think that's the core of our faith. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If you meet individuals that begin to hint that what we need to believe, the good news, is something like, yeah, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, um, and we participate in church life, and I think as we do that, that Um, God will see our hearts. He knows who we are. And someday when we stand before him, uh, you know, he'll tell us how we did. That's not the faith that was delivered to the church. Uh, Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 says this. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That's the history of the church. That didn't happen. (laughs) You want to summarize the departure of the church? It's in that verse right there. That didn't happen. They didn't walk as they had received them rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So the faith, faith means what we believe, starts, a major core of that is the gospel and it involves a number of other doctrines. Turn to Jude. You want to say Jude chapter something, but there's only one chapter. Jude. You know where I'm going if you're familiar with Jude. Jude, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning your common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The saints are not people on stained glass windows. The saints are believers. They're set apart in Christ at the moment of salvation and as they grow throughout life. Contend for the faith. And so, starting with the gospel, if you meet individuals, they begin to talk to you and you get the sense, wow, you know what? We've got a different message here. These basic essentials form the boundary of groups that, I don't want to use the word unchristian because that's not really a biblical term. The biblical term is that they have departed from the unity of the faith. They no longer hold to that which unifies all believers. These are the bare minimums of, I think, the things that that all believers have in common, at least these things. There's one Lord, there is one faith, uh, there is one Holy Spirit, uh, one baptism. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. 
in Judaism, there were a number of sort of dippings and washings that people were familiar with. But the baptism of the body of Christ is introduced in Romans 6. And we have a nice phrase here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. I'll read verse 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. This is what our baptism pictures. In which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Romans 6 talks about being buried with him and being raised in a newness of life. We are all baptized. Some believe that that's what's looked at. Some believe that Paul in Ephesians 4 is talking about the 1 Corinthians 12, 13 baptism. By one spirit, we're all baptized. But we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If you meet someone that talks about a different baptism, you need to begin to wonder. And lastly, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That last phrase is very interesting. Because it hints at the Trinity above and through and in you all. First um, Timothy chapter two verse five. You say, well, it's pretty easy to detect people that believe in another God. Don't assume that. You've heard about these books: the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas. These Gnostic books. The Gnostics call themselves Christians, but the God that they believed in was this sort of demiurge of layers and a, a person through knowledge kind of returned back to the God that was out there. People use the phrase God. You don't know what they mean. I have, a, I have some, some friends that are Mormons. They're, they're, they're nice people, sincere people. But if you begin to study what they mean by the word God, it is a different concept. And for all of the nice family materials and all of the things that they stand for that I appreciate, at the bottom of the barrel or whatever idiom you want to use, the God that they believe in is a different God than the God that we see in Scripture. Um, this is a God that has marital relations, so to speak, and has spirit children, one of whom was Jesus and one of whom was his brother Lucifer. And uh, we are all spirit children in some sense, and we will go up and rule planets and things like that. It's a different God. Uh, uh, first... Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus now if you, if you go to a mission field you'd be surrounded in some countries by people that believe in many gods and suddenly what seems simplistic in America becomes an extremely important passage there's one God um, there are not multiple gods and um, some of the singular gods that you hear about are not the God of the Bible. And so there's a, there's a basic boundary, I would say, outside of which, ultimately, we would say there's, the, the church is not here. Inside this boundary, those that have the same Lord, the same faith, the same God, the same spirit, the same baptism, the same hope, there is a responsibility to walk in meekness 
and in humility with them and to point them towards sound doctrine. Because if they make up part of the body of Christ, they're part of the bride of Christ. And the Lord loves them and the Lord owns them as his own. And our challenge and our desire is to aim for the sinner, which you guys will get into with this manual. And I think instead of taking a sort of a, a divisive position with other people, is to try to point them towards sound doctrine and share some of these things with them. How many people, I mean, I'm not going to take a poll, but there are many people here that, that grew up hearing the gospel. They grew up um, understanding uh, certain aspects of doctrine. But somebody came along to you and said, hey, why don't you read this pamphlet? Because they, they took a gracious and kind position and introduced you to spiritual truth, it began to grow. And you began to move in the same direction with them. You, you, um, they, they exhorted you. I think that's, that's a position that we need to take. Um, just a couple verses about, about false doctrine. So there's the challenge of being walking worthy of our calling, doing it in humility, doing it in kindness. But, even though people might be in, in the body of Christ, we're, we're, we're kind, we're gracious, we're trying to avoid denominationalism, we're sharing with them the truth that we know, consider the following passages. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. I'm just going to give you some verses. What I'm not suggesting by pointing us to Ephesians chapter 4, pointing out this sort of outer boundary of, of Christendom, if you will, or, or, or believers. Um, if I say that in a, in a, a gathering of believers, an assembly of believers are those that are made up of people that would share this faith, I'm not suggesting that it doesn't matter where you fellowship. It doesn't matter where you go. Anything inside that boundary doesn't matter. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says the following. And I'll read from verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he has called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about our calling this morning. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. We're supposed to stand fast and we're supposed to hold on to sound doctrine. And we're going to meet people that don't. And take a look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. It's also mentioning false doctrine, uh, or, or doctrine there. I think I have a wrong reference. Paul talks about marking people that have false doctrine and turning away from them. If, you can, if somebody knows the reference, you can call it out. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14, raises a similar issue.
Romans 16. Let's go back there. I want to read that verse. We don't need it. We don't need that many of them. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. There you. Thank you. I appreciate it, brother. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. He says, Paul writes, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. And so there's the the responsibility to stand in doctrine, but to avoid people that teach false doctrine. Something else that you'll note here is that the emphasis is on division. There is, there's the possibility, if people are obeying Ephesians chapter 4, I mean, I've seen a local church attempt to do this, that if a person is in a local church and they hold to a viewpoint or a perspective that is different than what the local church teaches, they could be charged to teach no other doctrine that, okay, I understand that you hold to that. You may not teach it here. And if that person obeys the leadership in that local assembly, then that's good. If they begin to do what it says here, cause divisions because they don't obey the leadership and they begin to press their doctrine or press their point, then you have a problem. Romans chapter 14 says to receive those who are weak in the faith but not to doubtful disputations. The scripture anticipates the fact that Christians will disagree on certain issues. I can list out a number of issues. Christians' involvement in politics and in voting, uh, whether you use public school or homeschool, issues with how many children you should have, issues with whether a person should join the military and, and, and take a gun and kill somebody, the use of alcohol. You're going to find believers that can turn you to verses and say, this is what the scripture says, and I believe this is the truth for all people. And you're going to find someone else that says, you know what, but look at this here. You're going to find differences on a number of issues among believers. But there comes a point where there are certain doctrines that people can teach and they begin to unsettle believers and even cause division. And at some point, the Apostle Paul notes and calls certain things. um, Well, he doesn't know them, but he says that there are people that cause division because they're teaching something that's contrary to sound doctrine. And at some point in our Christian life, we will have to draw the line and say, you know what? We've got to step away. Uh, I remember when someone came to our local church uh, and, um, and he began to teach a certain prophetic position. And the elders said, you know what? That's not what we teach here. We don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. You may not teach that from the platform. And he stood up and kept on teaching it. And eventually they said, you know what? You need to leave. You need to go to a local church that where believers teach that. We, we believe it's false. You need to go. And he did. On another occasion, a man came who uh, had written a book on a certain issue. I think it was also prophetic. And they sort of just told him up front. They said, listen. We know that you're clearly passionate about this issue. We don't teach that here. We're just going to recommend that, you know, we'll you know, bid you good day, and we think you should find another gathering of believers. Uh, and there are going to be times where we're going to have to step away from believers. Um, we're out of time, but what we've covered is the idea that as you all prepare to study the church, 
you're aiming for that New Testament pattern, there will be benefits in it for you. But as you go out into the world, as you, your kids go off to college, they're going to meet believers that don't hold exactly to that pattern. And they need to realize there's a wider body of Christ. People love the Lord. People are passionately serving him. And we need to walk worthy of our calling in humility and long-suffering, loving one another, pointing each other towards the truth. We're moving towards that central target of sound doctrine. There may come times where we need to say, you know what? That's false, and you need to leave this local church. You need to leave this Bible study group. Or you're not welcome here. And by pressing towards and pressing away from false doctrine, we're moving towards, I think, something that is, that is best for the local church. I, I, I hope that this has been helpful. And as you go through this manual, then you'll begin to focus on what the New Testament's pattern for the church is. And I think you'll appreciate it and um, you'll benefit from it. If any of you have any questions about the, the handouts that we gave out on Saturday, you may email me. My email is on the bottom of, of those sheets. And, uh, of course, any of the notes from some of the days are, are available to you. So let's just bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven this evening, I pray for this local church here. And Lord, why would we not pray for all gatherings of of true believers, those who share in the unity of the spirit? Lord, that you would, as we wait for your son from glory, aid us by your spirit to see sound doctrine, to see your pattern for the church and have the conviction to hold to it in humility and in love, but in firmness. We ask that as young adults go off from this local church to colleges and to other places in life or jobs, that they would carry a conviction regarding your church with them. It wouldn't be something that they would give up lightly. We ask that you would introduce us to other believers that are looking for truth about the church in this day of departure and that you would allow us to share with them what we have enjoyed and what we have benefited from Lord not because of ourselves but because of your grace and mercy Lord help us not to be arrogant and not assume that there's no room for us to learn no room for us to see something from scripture that we have may have may have missed Father we ask you to help us to walk worthy of the calling as we begin to study the church as an assembly and that you would be glorified in our learning and in our eventual obedience here in Fort Lauderdale. We pray this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.